Amen. Well, let's turn now in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 7 as we're moving through the book of Revelation and we've come to the seventh chapter. By the way, on Wednesday nights, we're going through a basic doctrine series and we started on the Holy Spirit this last Wednesday and, uh, and this week we'll be talking about the gifts of the Spirit and so you might want to join us for that time as well. But now here we are, Revelation chapter 7. Last week, we saw the first six seals of judgment that were opened during this time that we call the tribulation period, seven years of bad things happening on the earth, seven years of pain. These, this period of time had been predicted from back in the Old Testament with Daniel and Ezekiel and others. Jesus had talked about it in Matthew 24, and now here it's being revealed to John in the book of Revelation. Most of the book of Revelation is about this time that we call the tribulation. Now remember, it's a period of only seven years of time. Seven years isn't a long time. This is a lot to be happening in a short time. If you look at seven years from you know, where we are right now and look back to 2004, you know, that was when uh, Martha Stewart got out of jail. That was when Kobe went, was on trial. Seven years ago was when we had pretty much won the war in Iraq and Afghanistan had a free election. I mean, that doesn't seem that long ago. Then when you look at half of the tribulation period, three and a half years of really intensive times, we go back from today for three and a half years, and you see the economic collapse that led to the bank bailout and things like that. So these things don't seem like it was a long time ago. Seven years ago was when Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake sang at halftime of the Super Bowl. So you remember that. It doesn't seem like it was that long ago. So this is a lot happening in a short time. Now, as we come to chapter 7, there's a, there's a pause in the narrative describing this time, we're probably at a place around the middle of the tribulation. We saw last week, in just in chapter 6, the rising of a, of a very charismatic and power-hungry leader. We saw wars and famine and economic collapse and, and uh, earthquakes and disasters and things like that going on. <clears throat> and that was just the tribulation warming up. But now we come to a point where there's a there's a pause to explain something that's happening at the same time. And that something that's happening is one of the most amazing <coughs> revivals in the history of the world. Last day's revival happening big time. And so you see two things in this chapter. A group of people, 144,000 of them, who are supernaturally protected by God, and I believe they are Jewish people, at least that's what it says they are. And then secondly, you find out that a ton of people, probably largely as a result of these 144,000 witnesses, a ton of people are getting saved during the tribulation. So it's not just a time of bad things happening, it's a time of amazing things happening as well, and we catch that here. So let's begin in chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. And again, they didn't think the earth was square. Um, it's just an expression, four corners of the earth, maybe a reference to all the different directions, north, south, east, and west. But 
but they were holding the four winds of the earth so the wind wouldn't blow on the earth and the sea or on the trees and so on. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, don't harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So a wind is about to blow. And there are these four powerful angels who are about to come rolling through and judgment's going to be poured out on the planet like it's never been before. But before that happens, another angel with a loud voice goes, hold it just a minute. There are 144,000 Jews that need to be sealed. They need to have some sort of stamp of protection on them. Later in chapter 14, when it talks about the 144,000, it says that they have the name of God in their foreheads. And we don't know if that's literal or if it's just that he has, just like the Holy Spirit has sealed us when we get saved, he has said, that one's mine, they belong to me, they're locked in. In this case, it would seem that they would be supernaturally protected so that they could minister and evangelize during this time. And if you know, now people argue as to whether these 144,000 are really Jews or whether some people would say, well, I think these are the Christians who are there during the tribulation. People who want to identify them as just Christians in general and not Jewish Christians um, are people who generally interpret prophecy in light of their understanding that God is through with Israel. Israel has no place in the future and therefore we are spiritually Israel, and therefore this would be us. Now there are some cults who have said that they are the 144,000, the Jehovah's Witnesses declared this, until they got more than 144,000 members, which really messed them up. Um, but it says that they are Jews, and, and not only that, then it goes on and it lists the 12 tribes. And it says there are 12,000 from each of these tribes. So to dismiss this as being just a symbolic characterization of all the Christians who are there, um, then which tribe are you from? If that's you, what would you say? Are you from the tribe of Manasseh? Are you from Judah? Where'd you come from? It's just sort of meaningless to interpret it as anything other than Jewish people. Now, how you untangle that um, isn't necessarily easy to do, but for me, anyway, I'm going to assume that these are what it says they are, 144,000 Jews that God protects. Later in chapter 14, he talks about how they are serving God and they are ministering to him. They're amazing people. They're celibate. They're, there are a lot of characteristics that we will see about them later. But at this point, all we know is they are ministering. And, and I think you find out in the second half of the chapter who it was they were sharing with. But at this point, we see this protection from God on 144,000 Jews, or at least this is what it says. Now, think about it. People who are devout Jews, and they have heard all their lives about Jesus being their Messiah, and then they begin to see these prophecies unfold, and they begin to see you know, developing this picture that Christians have been telling them is going to happen, it's not surprising that they would then get saved. I heard someone mentioning the other day, I think on the radio, 
about Michael Medved, who's a Jewish commentator and uh, writer. And Michael Medved said, you know what? If the rapture ever happens, I'm definitely becoming a Christian. I'm going to become a Christian immediately if a whole bunch of people disappear. And I think there are probably a lot of Jewish people who are in that boat. Now, you could see why God would do this with these Jewish people, too, because there's no one more zealous for Jesus than Jews who have found and discovered him to be their Messiah. If they are devout Jews, they become really devout Christians. Look at Paul when he flipped. I mean, he was just, he was as hardcore Jew as you could be, and then he just became the worst nightmare of the people who would reject Jesus Christ because he had that Jewish passion combined with the fact that now he knew his Messiah. So imagine 144,000 of those people who also can't be killed. The world will want to kill them. See, in the beginning, the Antichrist is pretty friendly with the Jewish people. But when he gets frustrated and things are falling apart and getting worse, he uses the Jews as his scapegoat. And so now it's necessary, if they're going to testify, they need to be protected. And in fact, I believe that they are. Now, a couple things to mention about this list of the tribes. Um, in laying out the tribes, one of the things that's kind of glaring is that the tribe of Dan is not mentioned. And that's one of the 12 tribes, and yet they're completely left out here. People speculate as to what, why Dan would be left out. The truth is that the tribe of Dan was the first tribe to go into idolatry. And so perhaps they are then not allowed to fulfill this evangelistic role. Um, the good thing for the tribe of Dan is later in Ezekiel 48, you see the tribe of Dan listed in the millennial kingdom. So God's gracious. It's just that at this point, apparently they don't have a role in this special category of, of evangelism that's going on here. But you also see that, that well, it, Jacob had 12 sons, and those were technically the 12 tribes of Israel. However, a lot of the lists vary because, among other things, because of the special role that Joseph played in rescuing his people when he was in Egypt and then he brought them there and saved their lives, Jacob, when he blessed Joseph, said, instead of you being one tribe, you're going to be two tribes. I'm going to take your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, and they'll both be tribes instead of you. And so sometimes they're listed together. In a sense, Ephraim and Manasseh were each half a tribe comprising one whole tribe, making it 12 tribes. But like when they got their land in the promised land, the Levites, the tribe of Levi, didn't get land because they were the priests and they got land everywhere. They, they had a piece of everyone's land and everyone supported them. So, so in that case, Ephraim and Manasseh got separate um, allocations of land during that time. Now, here in this list, interestingly, Joseph is listed, as is one of his sons, Manasseh, but Ephraim is not listed. Now, he may have just given the name Joseph as a representative of the tribe of Ephraim. Ephraim was the second tribe to fall into idolatry, so perhaps they're left out, and some people who are of Joseph 
got in, um, but it's just interesting to untangle it. Whenever Israel is listed, it's always as 12 tribes, but the lists are different depending on what the role is. Here the role is evangelism, and these are the 12 groups of 12,000 people who were utilized in this way and uh, protected by the Lord. As soon as he sees it, in verse 9, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number. Now it doesn't mean there were so many that it's impossible to count. No one could number it. No one person could look and know how many people there are, which is interesting because he knew there were 144,000, so it's way more than that at any rate. Um, and they're, they're out of all nations, tribes, people, tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So he sees this massive group of people from every language group, from every nationality, every different look, a, an assortment, a diversity of people, and they are there in heaven worshiping God. And um, they're waving palm branches. Palm branches are the, were the symbol that would be used to celebrate a victory, a big victory. So there they are celebrating. Now we have to read on to figure out who they are. Um, it says, all the angels stood around the throne and the elders, which the 24 elders were the church, the four living creatures, and they all fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So this vast group of people and these other individual categories of people are all there praising God and worshiping Him, which is one of the primary activities that happens in heaven. Um, as we read on, we'll discover who these people are, but let's look just for a moment at the worship itself. It's saying, look, so be it, this is true, God is blessed. The word blessing is a word that just meant you have everything you could ever want. You're, you're satisfied, you're lucky, you're favored in every way possible. You're everything that, often this was used as a synonym for happy. It's just feeling like, ah, oh, I've got it all. God, that's you. You're blessed. You have glory. You're, worth, you're worthy of praise. You, as he goes on, he says, and, and you have wisdom. God knows everything. I'm glad that I don't know everything because I know someone who knows everything. You know, often you look at the world and you go, oh, how can we untangle this? You look at your own life and say, what hope is there? I don't know what to do. Fortunately, the book of James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. But God is one who is so wise that even if you don't know something, it's enough to know that he knows it. He sees it. Nothing escapes his notice. He is all wise. He is, you know, omniscient. He knows everything. And so God is being praised for that. He, he's kind of like Google. You know, I don't need to know everything because I know I have a Google app. And so I can find out anything by looking at it. God is even better than Google and, because he knows everything. And he tells you whatever you need to know. 
And so God is being praised for wisdom. Thanksgiving, something that is just an appropriate response to everything God has done for us. Thanksgiving shouldn't be one day a week in November. Thanksgiving should be our heart constantly. When I see what God has done for me, man, I'm blown away. I'm so thankful. When Jesus healed the group of lepers and only one came back, he was stunned. He goes, I can't believe only one, I healed 10 of you guys and only one of you came back. And yet so often that's the way our life is. We forget, we take him for granted and we forget to thank him. Thanksgiving should be at the center of our awareness and of our worship and our praise. God, thank you. And so they're acknowledging that. And honor, that is value to me. And power, you can do anything. And might, you're strong and enduring. And it's yours forever and ever. And so this explosion of praise, very similar to what we see in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Again, you're in heaven, and there's this worship scene. And then one of the elders said to John, Oh, by the way, who are these guys in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you know. In other words, I hope that's a rhetorical question. I have no idea. You live here. You tell me. (laughs) So he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him, and so on. And we'll go into that in a minute. So these people, countless, vast assortment of people, are all people who came out of the Great Tribulation. Now, they aren't the church. If it's the church, you'd think John would have recognized who they were. But we've already seen the church earlier as being represented by the elders. And these guys weren't there at that time. The, the church, I believe, is taken out of the world before the tribulation happens. Otherwise, they would be there evangelizing. You wouldn't need 144,000 Jews to do that job. There'd be millions of Christians doing that job. These are people who are in the tribulation, but they end up getting saved out of the tribulation. And the fact that their garments need to be washed and they're given these white garments it reverts back to what we saw earlier in chapter 6, that those who are martyred during the tribulation and are under the throne are described in the same way as being as saying, man, how long until this is over? And they're given these white robes. So now you just see them a little bit later, and I think the most obvious explanation is these are people who are alive during the tribulation, but they are martyred, which will happen to most Christians unless you're supernaturally protected like the 144,000. So these Jews are witnessing, and the people who come to Christ, there are tons of them. This is going to be the most amazing revival ever. Why? Well, as things begin to unfold more and more, just the way the Bible says, again, people are going to take notice. People are going to also be desperate because of the pain that they're going through. The difficulty we saw last week, they're like, I wish the rocks would fall on me. There are some people who just won't come to Jesus unless things get really bad in their life. Now, before you start judging other people, think about yourself. Now, maybe for some of you, that wasn't the case. That's awesome. You were on this way ahead of the rest of us. 
But for most people, it's when you find yourself under pressure. It's when you find yourself in pain. It's when you totally mess your own life up that then you realize, maybe I don't want to do it my way anymore. Remember, I said the tribulation is God saying, have it your way. And so for many of us, it's pain and pressure that brings us to the point of repentance. There are some people who come to repentance because of God's kindness. Other people need to realize how messed up they are when they see the world that they get, that they deserve, and then they go, you know, maybe this isn't so much fun running my own life. And that's a huge purpose of the tribulation period. It's like, you know, up until this point, God's grace has been manifested everywhere in amazing ways. The world is... A, is Despite the pain that's in this world, it's still a pretty amazing place. But now God just goes, the pain that you have hasn't been enough, so now I'm going to let you be in charge. Now I'm truly going to let you have the leaders that you want. I'm going to let you have the consequences of your actions. If you want to fight, I'll show you war. You'll see what that's like. You want to be greedy? I'm going to show you what that does to the economy. And in every way, God is saying during this short time, look, here you go. And still his heart is not, oh, I can't wait to crush these people. Oh, I'll love killing a fourth of the population of the world and later a third of the population. No, God doesn't take pleasure in anybody dying without him. But, and the only pleasure that God takes is when one of his people dies because instantly they're in heaven. And so a whole lot of people, as times get worse, turn to the Lord. Just like in China, where during all the years of horrible persecution, where people would get thrown in prison just for saying the gospel, just for sharing, the church just absolutely thrived during those years. It was amazing what God had done, in some ways much more impressive than today where things are much more free in China. Because when times get tough, people ask for help. And when people ask for help, God shows up. And so it's happening here. So here are these people who, because of this witness, they come to Christ. And now Jesus allows them to be killed, to get them out of this mess, and they go to heaven and here, this scene that we see is what it's like in heaven. This is giving us some insight. And again, this is specifically about martyrs during the tribulation period who went into the presence of God. But you get a really good idea here of what heaven looks like. And it stands in stark contrast to what this world looks like when God says, have it your way to this world. And so as he's looking at it, he says, first of all, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now you go, wait a minute, serve him? That sounds like you're slaves. And day and night, is that seven days a week? I mean, do you get a coffee break? Isn't there some, can't you have some time off? Serving God day and night doesn't sound like the greatest. That, doesn't, that wasn't my concept of heaven. I thought I would lay on a cloud and learn to play the harp. You know? <laughs> but think about it. The most exciting things that you will ever do in your life involve serving God. Using the gifts that God has given you 
and actually making a difference in someone else's life is the highest privilege that you can ever have in life. To know that you made a difference for something that will go beyond your own life that will last for eternity, to have the privilege of knowing that because of something you said or because of the way that you lived your life, there's somebody else who's going to be in heaven forever. I mean, that's what serving God is. In whatever capacity, whatever gifts God has given you, using your gifts is the greatest thing in the world. Now you go, yeah, uh, okay, I get that. I've served God before and it was cool, but day and night? Well, I mean, if I could serve God day and night, I would. I do it more than I should. But my capacities today are limited physically and emotionally and and temporally. And so, you know, but the reason why I do more than I should is because I love what I do. I, you know, every day I get a ton of emails from people. I don't go, sometimes I go, oh, I got to answer my emails. As soon as I'm answering them, it's great Bible questions. It's people who are saying, hey, I was just listening to your podcast. I'm, I'm in China. I'm in France. I'm in, I'm in Iraq. I'm you know, hearing what you have to say, and, and I just committed my life to the Lord, or I was so encouraged by what you said, or I was driving on my, in my car on the freeway, and I just flipped over to the station, and I heard you, and wow, God, do you think that I feel like, oh, shoot, I have to listen to more of that. What a drag. You know, no, of course not. Any more than I would naturally go, another Bible study, you know, no, I don't like doing that. No, I love doing it. It's my it's my downfall to a degree, because if I could do it day and night, I would. The reason I can't is because of the limitations of this body. I need to rest. I need to take a break. Now, in heaven you won't have that need anymore because you won't get tired. And so you get to do what you were created to do every moment of every day. Now, also in that, I know it's going to turn out that serving God is broader than just witnessing to people about how to get saved, teaching Bible studies, and, you know, loving people. It's going to turn out that there's a ton of things you can do that are all involved in serving God because we have an eternity, So if you just feel like zapping out across space and checking out a star you've never seen before, God's going, yeah, do it for me. Do that. Whatever it is that you do is service to God. And it's all the time because you'll never get worn out. You'll never get burned out. You'll never get tired anymore. And boy, do I love that idea. But he says, not only that, they're serving him day and night and He who sits on the throne will dwell with them. What a nice contrast. The word dwell means to be at home with, to be comfortable with. And so he's going, you'll serve him all the time and you will be at home with him. You'll be comfortable with him. It won't be awkward. You won't be having to second guess. I wonder if I'm doing this right. I wonder what his will is. He's going to be right with you. And so that intimacy with God combined with a tireless, ceaseless capacity to do what you were born to do is what the environment of heaven is like. And then he goes on and and says also, they shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. Now you might go, well, I mean, 
sometimes I like being hungry because food tastes really good when, when it's hungry. Well, you're hungry probably for a couple of reasons. There is a legitimate hunger that comes from being short on nutrients and needing to put something in your body in order to keep your body going. And that we call hunger. There's another hunger that we have, and that is just the desire to eat because you need comfort, desire to eat because you're bored, a desire to eat because you know you shouldn't. And all of these, we're talking about Doritos kind of hunger. And I mean, when you're hungry for Doritos, it doesn't have anything to do with your, you know, I guess I have a salt shortage. I guess I have a carbohydrate shortage. No, you just like Doritos. But see, in heaven, you will neither need nutrition nor will you need comfort food. But as a, so as a result, now you will eat. And you may want to eat. Uh, there are fruit trees and things like that. There's a banquet that we're going to participate in. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, when he showed up in the upper room with the disciples, one of the first things he said is, hey, you guys got anything to eat? So it's eating not because you have to. Eating just because you want to, because you get to. And so that hunger and that thirst, no, it's not going to be there anymore. All the reasons why you need are taken away and then everything isn't I need to, it's I get to. And that is a, it's a beautiful thing just to think. Imagine never craving Doritos, but you can eat them anytime you want and it's not going to affect you in a bad way. I can't wait. <laughs> but he also says the sun shall not strike them. Now it'll be bright. The, the, the light is everywhere. When you look at all the depictions of of the throne room of God, there's lights and colors and sounds and explosions. The, and even the Son of God is said to be the light. But, you know, in this case, you know how you love sun and yet sun is bad for you? Um, it feels really good to be out in the sun until you start thinking of your dermatologist and you're going to have to get more stuff burned off your head. And you're, you know, and then you're like, well, what a bummer. I wish I was one of those people who, you know, various skin types, some of whom, you just can't hurt them. They can be in the sun all the time, and it doesn't bother them. I can't imagine what that would feel like to lay out in the warmth and to, at the same time, know that it's not going to do me any damage at all. When I get out in the sun, oh, it feels so good, and then it starts to sizzle, and I'm like remembering all the burns that I'm going to have to get at the dermatologist, you know, coming up this month because of me enjoying the sun. And in heaven, though, you can feel the sun, but it's not going to hurt you. It's not going to strike you. There won't be anything negative about it. It'll just be all positive. But it also says, nor any heat. Now, that word for heat refers to heat vapors that come up. One common use of this word it, it was used to refer to mirages. A mirage is when you're, you're, you're thirsty and you're dry and you're out in the desert and as the, as the heat starts to lift off the ground and interact with the atmosphere, you can see things that aren't there. And I don't know if you've ever seen a mirage, but you're out in the desert, you see this beautiful lake and you blink your eyes, is that a lake or is that a mirage? And people who get really thirsty in the desert sometimes will eat dirt 
as a part of a mirage that they really believe is, is water. And I think that's probably what he's referring to here. No mirages. You know, so many things that we think are going to be great and they don't happen. You know, the NCAA basketball championships are the ending up tomorrow night with the finals. Most teams have been completely devastated because everyone except two teams, Butler and UConn, has lost in this tournament. And they thought being at this tournament would be the greatest thing. Imagine if you're from Ohio. Ohio State, number one seed. And everybody's certain this is kind of a weak year. Mostly now the NCAs are all the guys that can't make the NBA. So it's just, you know, mostly freshmen and, and Ohio State, man, they've got this strong team. Everybody picked them to win it. But they didn't even make it to the fi- semifinals. And so they're so disappointed because all year they've been planning on this. And then nothing. And in a way, isn't a mirage a good metaphor for almost everything that we look forward to in life that never happens? That new job that you're so excited about because you just know it's going to be great, and then it's a mirage? <laughs> that person that you married, that, that <laughs> new friendship that you have, that car that you bought, that whatever it is that at one point your perception was, oh, this looks amazing. And you get there, and it just fizzles. It just disappears. It's not what you thought it would be. And in heaven, there are no more mirages. If you see a lake, it's a lake. If you have excitement and hope for the future, it's real. God is going to fulfill every desire that you could ever have. It's going to happen. And so in heaven, no more longing for something that doesn't happen. No more seeing something and finding out that it's not real. For the lamb who is in the middle of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. It's like, you know what? He is going to lead you. You don't have to worry where you're going, what you're going to do. The shepherd is there. He'll be feeding you. He'll be leading you. And he will lead you to beautiful, clear, living water, water that's bubbling forth. You don't have to test it and wonder if it's any good. You don't have to put filters on your refrigerator. You don't have to drink out of a bottle. You can just drink right out of the stream because he takes you there. The beauty and clarity of fresh running water, our shepherd takes us there. As, as David had said in the 23rd Psalm, he leads me beside still waters. That's what's happening in heaven. And finally, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Everything you ever cried about here on earth isn't going to be a problem when you're with the Lord. There are many of you, I'm sure, that cried this week over something. Whatever that was, it's not going to be a problem in heaven. Every time you have felt like you've come up short, every time in your life you've been frustrated and discouraged and you get so desperate that you just want to cry or you do cry, heaven's not going to be that way. No more reason to cry. No more, you know, no, no tears in heaven because now everything is the way that it was supposed to be all along. Those tears that are left over from this earth are just taken away, wiped away as we come into the presence of God. 
What a beautiful picture of heaven right smack dab in the middle of a discussion on the tribulation. But here's the point. The earth during the tribulation is the world when we get what we want. And heaven is the design that God has that he says, if you just let me do what I want to do, this is what I have for you. This is what I am promising you. When I read this, and I think of people I love who have died and, and gone to be with the Lord, I don't feel sorry for them at all. And in fact, as I think about it, I really feel less sorry for me because they're gone. Because I know where they are, and I know I'm going there. And so it's not, you know, for people in the tribulation, the pressure was on. They turned to the Lord, yeah, they get killed, and the result of that is here they are with their loving Father, worshiping Him, being fulfilled in every way imaginable. And this should change our perspective on everything. Now, the other thing that I get from this is, what's the effect of pressure on your life? What does difficulty do to you? Does it cause you to long for doing things His way? Because a lot of these things that happen in heaven, he wants to do for us on the earth. He wants to bless us. He wants to help us. He wants to give us a better life. Our lives are messed up because we want it our way. So when we, when we see the difference between his plan and ours, doesn't it cause us to wise up and go, you know what? I don't think I want to run this anymore. I don't think I want to go against what God wants because I see where he's taking me. I see the kind of environment that he wants. I, I see that he can give me peace and comfort and strength and nutrition. and He can do all that for me even here because that's his plan. And so I pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The tribulation is the process in which God fulfills that completely, but it's also a reminder of the choices that we have in life. Maybe some of you are here today, and your life stinks. It's really lousy. You've tried what you, what you want. It never works out. Everything that you look forward to turns out to be a mirage. And yet, you've never come to the point where you say, maybe I should give Jesus a shot. Maybe it could be better. Maybe there's an opportunity here somewhere. I'm here to tell you that every bit of pressure in your life is designed to cause you to say, okay, I'm done. I'm through doing it my way. I want to do it yours. And God can bring the blessings of heaven to your life today because he wants to dwell with you even now. He wants to give you a fresh start. And if you've never made that decision for Jesus... Today would be a perfect time to do it. If you're going to be stubborn, don't worry. He's going to keep the pressure on. If you think it's been difficult, hey, it's going to get more difficult. I promise you. And it's not because I say that. It's because that's what his word declares. But the real question is, what are you going to do with the pressure? What are you going to do with the trouble that you're in? If you're in a mess, now, a lot of times you'll end up getting away with stuff. And it looks really bad, and then it lets up. It's because God's just going, let me try this another way. 
Okay, yeah, you were unemployed, and then you got a job, and you're all happy again, and you're still not interested in Jesus. So how else can I let you have your way where you can damage yourself again? Until again and again, tear after tear, trial after trial, you finally get to the point where you go, I don't want it my way anymore. God, I want it your way. And that's all he's trying to do. And in the future, I believe not too far off, he's going to do that on a massive scale. And the result of that is going to be masses of people of every language and every nationality and everything coming and turning themselves into him and enjoying the blessings of heaven. Today, there's not as much pressure as there will be in those days, but today he's still squeezing some of you. And there are people here who have been feeling the pressure and yet you've been resisting it and you've been not turning yourself over to him. Please, please let go. Give it up. Your way isn't working and it's never gonna work. I don't care how many great ideas you have about the future, it never works to live your life your way. And I would encourage you to turn it over to him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thanks for this glimpse into the future and the reminder that even when the world is going through the worst time ever in its history, you will be at work protecting your witnesses and saving people who get desperate enough to ask. So Lord, please help us to live our lives today as if we prefer heaven to hell as if we prefer to do it your way than to do it our way. Help us to learn that. And God, if there are people today who this is the day when they've finally had enough of the pressure and they're ready to turn themselves over to you. Maybe they've been in church all their lives, but they've never really decided to do it your way. God, I pray that you would speak to their hearts and draw them to you. Draw them to discover heaven on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.